0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Exodus 3, 1 through 14. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the city of the Israelites has reached me, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people of the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and I will and this will be the sign This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thank God. You.
1: Good morning to you. Good morning storefront. Um we are we're beginning a new sermon series. Uh, it's been uh, about a year and now we're move, we're in a sermon series in which we're going to be moving towards membership and therefore we're looking at it with this new series we're looking at those aspects of the Christian faith which make C- Christian community not only distinct but that allows for Christian community to to grow and to hopefully make a lasting impact here for us, uh, Torfront Church in this particular neighborhood and because this is New York City, maybe even for the world. You know, if you look at the skyline of New York, then it's hard to say it's just the best skyline in all, all of the world, right? But the reason for that is because the rock that is uh, under the surface is some of the hardest rock in all of the world. And therefore, if you look downtown, you look into Midtown, you see what? You see not only land that people can stand on, but you see land that people can dream and build upon, right? Because of that man- Manhattan shift, pe- shift, which is that hard rock formation, we're able to, to build or be able to, to, to create. And there are essential truths in the Christian uh, experience, essential truths in the Christian tradition that act as that same sort of foundational bedrock for us as well. And those truths are uh, the reality of God, uh, the presence of scripture in our lives, and what it means for us is, as um, people walking in faith. Um, what is the human condition? you know, who are we? What's the human experience? And uh, that, of course, leads to, to Jesus. Who was this person that walked in the first century uh, from Nazareth? Uh, so we look at his person, but we also look at his work. What is his, uh, not only his example, but his work on the cross mean for us as a community? And so we also will look at uh, the institution, you might say, or uh, the people of God. We'll look at the church, which we have done uh, in the last several weeks. So we'll look at all of those basic foundational truths, but we'll also um, look at some of the things that just naturally flow out of them. Uh, How do you live uh, this faith out that we believe uh, in matters of work, in our vocation? How do we live in light of of Christ um, uh, in our relationships? How do we live out this faith uh, within our bodies, within our sexuality? How do we look around the world and, and believe that God is doing something in the world and think about uh, issues around mercy uh, and justice? Uh, how do we think about the arts and creativity? And of course, the conversation that we've been having since the beginning, in light of uh, the gospel, what do we think and how do we live uh, as a people who are pursuing race equity? See, all of these things are actually bound up with the Christian faith. And so, today, uh, to begin this series, we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to start. Uh, at the beginning of the beginning, and that is, of course, God, and we shouldn't be surprised that when we talk about God as a secular society, as New Yorkers, uh, that we're, we're going to come at this discussion from various uh, perspectives, and just as a way to illustrate this, you know, there's a, a story from Mark Dever. Mark Dever is a, a D.C. pastor who was teaching on the doctrine of, of, of God, the theology of God, when uh, uh, an attendee, uh, a good friend in his church, stood up and offered uh, his own thoughts on how he perceived God uh, for himself. And, and I share that with you, not because, um, well, I'll share it with you, and then, uh, and then we'll discuss it. Uh, the attender said this, he says, you know, I, I believe that God is a friendly deity who is wise, but not meddling, compassionate, without overpowering, uh, he's ever resourceful, but he's never interrupted. Now, uh, I appreciate that statement. And I want to share it with us because I think it probably represents, if not a formal belief about God for many of us. For a lot of us, it represents you know, a functional belief that we actually have about God. I share this because in some ways I can relate. Every one of us has our preferences. Every one of us has our leanings. But the question that we always have to ask ourselves is, if God God reacts just the way that I tend to react, or if God believes all the things that I believe, then we have to ask the question, am I in touch with the real God? Or am I simply interacting with my own emotions? Am I interacting with my own temperament and desires? Are we dealing uh, actually with uh, the God of our own making? That's the question we always have to put before us. Because if we deal with the God of our own making, that would absolutely be tragic. Why? Because not only does he not exist, but this God is not a God who can actually help. us. But fortunately for Moses and for you and I, we have a God who challenges all the ways that we think we want God to be. See, this, this quote says that he wants God to be friendly. But I think uh, this passage shows that God does us one better and that is that he's good. Yes, he's wise, but it's out of his goodness and his wisdom and his compassion that he does more than meddle with our lives, but that he intercedes. The God of the Bible is a God who parts the waters. He, he raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. In many ways, he is his most loving when he interrupts. He's his most loving when he meddles with, with us. See that's the God that we we find here, as un- as uncomfortable as that might be. See the Bible offers a God that you and I would never consider. He offers a God that we cannot make up. The God of Moses and the God of this church is a God of redemption. He's a God of holiness, and he's a God of mission. So that's what we believe when it comes to God. We believe that God even really as a starting point, as a foundation, is a God of redemption. He's a God of holiness, and he's a God of mission. So look, let's just jump into the first one. First, he's a God of redemption. And you see that right there in in those first couple of verses, because the place where Moses encounters God in this fantastic story, he encounters God in a burning bush is where? It's on Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. But Horeb actually means desolation. It means desolation. And what that tells us is that God intervenes in Moses' life where? At the place of desolation. And he does that in order to call him to something greater. And why does he do that? Because he's a friendly deity who doesn't want to meddle? No. It's because Moses needs meddling with. Because the God of the Bible and his sovereign authority in his control he set his sights on not just personal redemption, but on cosmic redemption. And Moses is included in all of that. So, how did Moses get to this particular place? Well, because God is a God of redemption, we also have to consider that God is a God of providence. Now, what does that word mean? What is that? that theological term well providence means that in god's infinite wisdom that he takes both the good things and he takes the bad things in our life and he weaves them into his perfect plan and god has been doing that if you know the story of moses since day one he's been doing this in moses's life before moses even realized it since day one moses has been dependent on god's provision and we see that because god worked through people to bring Moses to this place. Consider this: you know, when Moses was born, there was a decree from Pharaoh that all the Hebrew children should be killed. And therefore, you remember the story from Sunday school, right? Moses's mother places him in a basket, and what does she do? She intentionally sends him down the river so that he can be uh, received by the caravan of Pharaoh's wife. So she strategically places him in the basket seems dangerous still, right? But he places this child in the basket so that he can be received into the arms of of Pharaoh's wife. And so what that means is that his safety and his eventual upbringing, his education in the court of Rome was dependent on the courage of women that were around him. And these women were provided by God. So God works through people, but we also know that God worked in Moses' life through his sin to bring him to this particular place. You know, in his late 30s, Moses had an experience that changed the course of his life. Uh, In that experience, he saw a Jewish slave who was being mistreated, and what did he do? He stepped into it, and he interceded. And it's a little bit vague, honestly, whether he's seeking justice or he's seeking revenge. But we know that in his interceding, he becomes the evil that he sought to eradicate. And so on his own, we learn that Moses doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the discipline. He doesn't have the creativity, the ingenuity to actually bring the justice that is necessary. And therefore trusting in his own strength and his own sufficiency, what he does is he abuses the power that he has and he kills a man. And we know that it's injustice, why? Yeah, of course, murder is wrong. Yes, of course, right? But we know that it's an injustice here because the Hebrew people themselves look at Moses and they chastise him. They look at Moses and they stand against him. And so, out of fear and shame, what does he do? Moses well, flees out into the desert, where God, through uh, this uh, man named Jethro, provides him refuge and he also provides him time. So, God works through people to provide. Uh, redemption. God works through our own sin to provide redemption. God also works through time to bring Moses to this particular place. See Moses spent time in the desert. How much time did Moses spend? He spent four decades in the desert. I know how long four decades is. and while he was there, he created a whole new life. He learned a new skill he got married. He humbled himself under his father-in-law and he became the the best educated second shepherd probably in the history of the world. But I suspect that Moses came to this place, this place of desolation at the age of 80. After 40 years, of a life he never thought he'd live. After 40 years of being in the desert, I think he came to this place of desolation because he was determined to atone for his life, to atone for his sins. He was determined to do penance. And you know, penance is voluntary self-punishment before God. But why did he do that? And I think it's this, because he worshiped a God of his own imagination. Moses did too. See, the God of the Bible is not a God who desires penance. He's not a God who desires voluntary self-punishment. But he's a God who desires and leads us to repentance. And those are very different things. Repentance is simply turning from that which is evil to that which is good. It's turning from that which uh, causes harm to that which brings about beauty. It's turning from Uh, The wagging finger of sin that brings about judgment on us towards the embrace of a loving God who promises forgiveness himself. And so the God of the Bible is not a God, God who desires penance, but a God who desires and leads us towards repentance because he's a God of redemption. Four decades in the desert. And yet it was not in vain because of this God of redemption. But not only does God work through people or sin or time, but He also works through this bush. God worked through this bush to get Moses' attention, to jog his memory, to spark his imagination, that though He's in the place of desolation, the same God that is at work throughout history. The God of his fathers, the God of Isaac, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is right there too. He's right there with it. Why? Because God is redeeming his life. And he's always been redeeming his life. This same God is at work in the world. That's why we've planted this church. That's why, that's what we're doing here. That's what we believe. So this same God of redemption, the same God of providence is not only has not only is not only redeeming Moses' life, but that, that same reality is true for you. That same reality can be true for, for us here and now. So we believe in a God of redemption. We also believe in a God of holiness. So God gets Moses' attention, doesn't he? And he does that by um, by uh, this bush that doesn't burn. Now, bushes often burned in the desert, it makes sense, right? It's so hot, these bushes are so dry that it was not uncommon for bushes to just simply you know, burst into flames. But this bush gets his attention because it doesn't actually burn. It's not consumed. And so Moses sees this subtle, actually would be a very subtle distinction. He would have had to have been paying attention looking around and so he sees this and he goes to towards it but what happens in verse four the angel of the lord here who speaks as god the angel of the lord who has the authority of god he stops moses dead in his tracks with a word of warning he says don't come any closer if you come any closer you're going to die you're standing on holy ground so what is he experiencing here what God is, or excuse me, what Moses is experiencing here through the bush is a mediated experience of the holiness of God. Now, the holiness of God in the Bible doesn't just represent a, a general sacred feeling. It doesn't represent a kind of spirituality. The holiness of God represents God's ever existing, unchanging goodness and purity. Is ever... Uh, existing unchanging goodness and purity and let's just land on that idea of unchanging for a second see there's a difference between unchanging goodness and purity and potentiality right some might say that human beings show these these qualities of goodness and purity and fits and starts but we never actually achieve our potential of course that's the goal of the enlightenment wasn't it that through education and and through the human will one day we would achieve goodness and purity. We'd achieve what we actually desire. But what this means here is that goodness and purity, the kind that is embodied here in this sacred holy place of this burning bush is is a realized goodness and purity, not an unrealized one. What What we're saying is not potential for goodness and purity, but goodness and purity that has that just is. It's goodness and purity that has no beginning and no end. It's goodness and purity, um, true goodness and purity, not the potential for such. See, true goodness and purity. Uh, so, excuse me, goodness and purity for us is always in the in the in the future. It's always a, a kind of potentiality. And what the philosophers and theologians would actually suggest is. If true goodness and purity is always in the future, it's always a potentiality, then we have to question whether we understand the meaning of goodness and purity. Does it really exist for us? It's a challenging idea. And so as you and I think about goodness and purity, what do we think? It seems so inviting, doesn't it? It seems that it sounds like something you and I can just walk into with open arms. But such is the difference between experiencing our goodness and purity and the reality that is the unchanging goodness and purity that stands before Moses. It's the difference between a picture of a sun drawn by a third grader and the sun itself. See, one is cute. One's aspirational. One brings a kind of warmth to the heart. But the other is the power that holds the universe together the other is one that if you were to be up close and personal with it with it it would be deadly see the goodness and purity the holiness of god has that kind of power so how do we how do we interact with that how do we consider god's holiness as we consider our lives and as we consider our relationship with god what are we to do with that You know, we're a culture where we make fainting gestures towards the sacred. We're a culture that values uh, process. We value, um, you know, uh, considering these sacred truths just endlessly. Uh, We're a culture where more people actually uh, think of themselves as spiritual, but not religious. So in a culture like that, how does a story like this, how are we to deal with a story like this? Well, it should stop us in our tracks too. It should come as, in a sense as a warning because here we have a God that doesn't desire for us to be spiritual or religious. He desires for us to know his holiness, to be confronted by his holiness, with his goodness and, his, and purity itself. And so what is the response to a God that presents this holiness and wants us to enter into it? Well, look at the response of Moses, he's afraid. He's afraid because he turns his face away in fear. And he's afraid because he thinks, A, I might die. But I also think he's afraid because of something more that's taking place within his own heart. Henry Blackaby is, is a Bible teacher. And he says that when it comes to spiritual awakening, both uh, in communities and in, in individuals. He says the outstanding feature is that people have a profound consciousness of the presence and the holiness of God. That when revivals break out, it's because the, a holy God draws near. And when a holy God draws near, they, people come under a terrible conviction of sin. And that's what we're seeing here that God is a God of redemption, but he's also a God of holiness. And when he comes, uh, and when Moses comes into contact with this, he turns away in fear. He's he's not just afraid for his life, but there's a terrible conviction of sin. So, uh, and, and the ter- that terrible conviction of sin causes us to, rem- it reminds us of, of all the ways that we're not Godlike, all the ways that we are insufficient, uh, all the ways that we're sinful and selfish, uh, all the, all the aspects of our lives that bring about regret and shame. See after seeing such beauty, you can imagine that you begin to hate the lesser things which keep you from it. You're humbled. See black and be saying that when you come into contact with the holiness of God, that there's an awakening that takes place, a recognition that takes place within your own soul that says, I want this, but it's dangerous for me. I desire this, but I know that if I come close, I'm doomed. And of course, the answer to that is God sends a mediator, doesn't he? Here we see it in the in, in, uh, form of a bush. And just in that regard, what takes place makes Moses want to take off his shoes. It makes Moses want to ask questions. He's confronted with the God of redemption. He's confronted with a God who is also holy. And he asks questions that we see here in this passage. Who am I? Who are you? Are you actually sending me somewhere? Will you go with me? Which brings us to our third point: not just the God of redemption; He's not just a God of holiness, but He's a God of mission. He calls you into into not just uh, He calls you into being; He calls you into doing. See, without even able to process all that is going on, God it calls Moses uh, into mission. So He's not just about personal transformation here; He's about a cosmic and cultural redemption. Moses hasn't even had his wits about him yet. And yet he's saying, here's the plan. Here's the plan. I want you to know something, Moses, God says. I see the injustice that you saw. I hear the cries that you you hear. And he says, you had a passion, but I have compassion for these people. And so instead of uh, bringing revenge, I want to bring justice. I wanna answer the cries. I wanna speak to the needs because I'm not just a God of personal salvation, which I'm bringing to you now, Moses, but I'm about a God of cosmic redemption. See, God is committed to his creation and to his people. And so what does he do? It's interesting. He sends Moses back to Egypt. He sends him back to the place of his greatest shame to deal with justice differently to deal with justice redemptively out of the holiness of God. See, God comes and he says, I want you to return and not just take on a guard. I want you to return and go straight up to Pharaoh. I want you to address the head of the snake. I want you to address Pharaoh. I want you to take on the entire system so that what? You can free people, so that people can be liberated. And that's why Moses says, Who am I to do such a thing? Who am I to do such a thing? But what does God say? He says, don't worry, I will go with you. And there Moses has an experience that is unique amongst the Old Testament prophets. It's an experience that Abraham didn't have or Isaac didn't have or Jacob didn't have. He asks who is going to send him and God tells Moses his name. He says, I am that I am. I am that I am. And, that, and what that name means is that that's the revelation of God's utter and complete self-sufficiency. See, Moses knows in and of himself what you and I know in and of ourselves. We are not sufficient beings. We don't know how to love the way that we're called to love. We don't know how to uh, think. That w- we don't have the wisdom that we're called to have in this world to meet the needs of this world. But, God, but Moses says to God, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. And the way of saying that is I am dependent on nothing. I am dependent on myself. I am all sufficient. I'm complete self-sufficiency. The technical term is, it's the revelation of God's aseity. He is, he alone is of himself dependent on nothing. And this means for Moses and for Israel that God is not dependent on Pharaoh's cooperation. Moses needs to just simply trust that God has his back, that God's at work in him to accomplish what God has promised to bring about. So God is the I am. He's not dependent on anyone. He is all sufficient. And Moses, and he's saying to Moses, my sufficiency is good enough for you. I'll bring about the kind of cosmic redemption that is necessary my response will be the appropriate response uh, to the cries of the people, to the needs of their suffering. So Moses needs to know that though he is insufficient in every aspect of his character, the all-sufficient one is going with him. He's going with him. Now, was the purpose of this story simply to bring a people out of slavery Yes and no. Yes, those particular people were suffering and they needed to be liberated, and they were. And proof that God actually called Moses to liberate those people and to bring them out was that one day that they would worship on that mountain. And of course, the other name for that mountain is Mount Sinai. That is the place that is the mount of God. And that's the place where the the holiness of God consumed the mountain. That was the place where the people of God once liberated, worshipped the all-sufficient God, met not just the the needs of Moses, but he met the needs of those who were in bondage. But of course, we see in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of this passage, because the promise of Jesus is that he doesn't just come to liberate people from physical bondage, he's come to liberate people from spiritual bondage. He's come to liberate people from spiritual bondage. The same angel uh, that we see here in this bush, we also see in in the book of Daniel. The same angel is the one that stands in the fiery furnace with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And this is the same angel that meets so many others in the place of desolation. But in Jesus Christ, this angel of the Lord, God himself, into into the desolation of the first century Jewish community as well, and he lives for decades among them, and he takes on a trade, doesn't he? And he humbles himself, and he submits himself to being dependent on others. See, he lives the life that you and I should live so that he can die the death that you and I should die You know, there's a place where, as he's going to the cross, after he's just washed the feet of his disciples, as he's going to the cross, uh, the the centurions come to him and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Or Jesus, excuse me, says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And in response, he hearkens back to this moment. And he says, I am He just says, I am. And in John 18, you know what it says? As soon as they, as soon then as he had said this to them, I am, they went backward and they fell to the ground. And so that's a way of saying holiness himself was with them. Holiness himself was within a body. Holiness himself was in the body and yet it didn't consume the body. See, the fullness of God was in Christ, and he went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the kind of desolation that that Moses was afraid of. He experienced uh, the holiness of God by embodying in the flesh all of our sin for us. He who was holy experienced the reality and the judgment of our lack of goodness and our lack of purity so that we could experience redemption so that we could actually enter into holiness, that holiness itself could come in, into us, so that we could also be sent out with purpose. And so in closing, as we think about what Moses experiences, we think about what God has done for us in Jesus, what could be different about the purpose of my life because of the reality of this God? How should I now live? How should I now treat my work, treat my relationships, treat the people around me? See, we wanna be a community that like Moses recognized their mental, their physical insufficiency. insufficiency. But we also need to recognize our moral insufficiency as well and look to the all sufficient one. You know, we live in a a city, in a culture, in a country that prides itself on being self-made individuals. But if you look to the God of the Bible, if you look to this God who is about redemption and holiness and mission, then we have to recognize that the God, uh, the sovereign God, the God of the Bible, brings death to the the myth of the self-made man. 5,000 years ago, Moses lived. And even today, he's considered one of the most important, impactful people in all of human history. And we live in a time of a bunch of of masters of the universe, don't we? We look around and people are doing incredible feats, technology and medicine and so on and so forth. None of them will have the impact of Moses. Nobody, I'll leave it there. As extraordinary as Moses' life was, he was not a self-made person. Moses' life is almost defined by his dependence on others. Ultimately, his life is defined by his dependence on God so be it with us as well. See, the Christian community is one of individuals who know that they've come to the end of themselves. Have you? Do you recognize that we lack the love, we lack the wisdom, we lack the creativity and the energy that the world actually needs, but when we turn to God, He provides? Are we a community that pursues holiness? Admittedly, there's probably nothing more confusing or uninspiring for people than the pursuit of holiness. But let's remember this. God never intended to make people more spiritual or religious. He intends to make people holy because he is holy himself. Colossians 2 says this about Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what do we do with a God that we find in the scriptures? One that confronts us in all of these particular ways, Would you, by the power of your spirit, teach us about your love, not to bring revenge, but to bring redemption. About how your holiness is both dangerous and absolutely what is necessary and what we need. That in Jesus you provide a way that we can be liberated from our own sin and experience this holiness without without being crushed. Lord, would you help us to understand all of these things that so that we might follow Christ in this world as he's called us to. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.